Welcome to Malpractice Insider, a patient safety podcast of case studies from the Harvard Medical System, from CRICO, the insurance program for all of the Harvard Medical Institutions and their affiliates, bringing a data-driven approach to reducing medical error through clinical analysis of malpractice claim. The following case study is based on closed claims in the Harvard system. Names and some details have been changed to protect identities. Raquel Ademus moved stateside from Puerto Rico to get her nurse's aid certificate. She found employment at the hospital near the apartment she shared with her boyfriend and two children. The position, patient care assistant or PCA, provided training, health insurance, and a good starting wage. Ademus felt at home on her unit. Ten of the twelve PCAs had Caribbean or Central American backgrounds. Even as she gained seniority, Ademus noticed that two new hires, both white, did not get assigned night shifts and were often allowed to leave early on slow shifts. Ademus, who suffered migraines and sleep deprivation, asked her manager, Yvette Gen, if she could be excluded from night shifts. Without asking any questions or contacting HR or her own supervisor, Gen refused any accommodation. She told Ademus that everyone had to work some night shifts until they had top seniority status. Then she added, quote, and you island girls never stay long enough to get there, close quote. Ademus later learned from other PCAs that Gen often mocked their accents and made unkind comments about island girls, then started to witness it herself. When Ademus started getting assigned extra tasks and more night shifts than the other PCAs, she contacted the operations manager, Gen's supervisor. During that conversation, Ademus confided to her about Gen's derogatory remarks. The operations manager told Ademus, I'll talk to her again. But no investigation took place, and the operations manager did not report the complaint to HR. After that meeting, Gen was even more critical of Edema's work. Ultimately, Edema's contacted the hospital's employee assistance program, which put her in touch with a pro bono legal service. Edema's filed a complaint with the State Discrimination Board alleging racial discrimination, a hostile work environment, and retaliation. This case was settled on behalf of the hospital with a payment to Edema's. To discuss the risk management and patient safety aspects of this case, we are joined now by Boston attorney Megan Curris. Ms. Curris is a partner with Hamill, Marson, Dunn, Reardon, and Shea. Megan, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So I think in MedMail law, we've learned that you need to meet certain criteria to be found liable under the tort system. So you have duty, breach, damages, causation. Is it similar for a case like this, which really went into a state discrimination board, not necessarily a court, but is is this area of the law more cut and dry or is it a little harder? So just um, in general, so in order to prove a general discrimination case, first of all, the individual is going to have to prove that they are a member of a protected class. So that is straightforward. So the next thing that they're going to have to prove is that they just that they suffered some adverse employment action. Um, and again, that's relatively straightforward. There are some cases where that is a real issue, whether or not whatever it is that the person is complaining about could be construed as an adverse employment action. But when you get into the next part of the claims, what they have to prove is that the adverse employment dis, uh, action was related to some discriminatory animus. So that the reason that something bad happened to them was that somebody was discriminating against them. And that's where the facts are going to be very different case to case um, and will really sort of come into play and in how a court or eventually a jury or even the, um, the MCAD or a similar um, 
you know, state or federal agency is going to view it. Um, in this case, the plaintiff herself felt that the request for accommodation was reasonable. Everything after that from the hospital seemed a little bit ad hoc, uh, from whoever was handling it to whatever their response was. Um, several things kind of went wrong along the way. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and this, for better or worse, is not unique to this case. Um, this is a really tricky area for employers to deal with, and it's a tricky area of employment law, um, frankly, um, you know, insofar as what constitutes a reasonable accommodation and what is the employer's obligation once that requ request is made um, to sort of put the wheels in motion to either make that happen or make a decision that that's something that we cannot do. Um, you know, and in this particular case, once the request for the accommodation was made, there wasn't a whole lot that was done to, you know, really make a good faith determination as to whether or not this is something that we can do. It was a little bit more of a knee jerk reaction. And I think that that is something that sometimes does happen, um, you know, particularly because a lot of times employers are looking at it from the perspective of, well, what is fair to our other employees? And if we make this exception for this person, how is that going to impact how we handle you know, requests of similar nature or the same type of request that may not be in relation to a disability um, with the rest of our workforce and be fair? Um, so one of the things that is important when looking at these requests for accommodation is to make sure that there really is a good faith effort by the employer to determine if this is something that they can do um, without, you know, the way that it's looked at in the laws, do you have to fundamentally restructure the job requirements in order to provide this accommodation? If the answer to that is yes, then the employer can make a legitimate argument that it's an accommodation that they probably can't provide you know, in a reasonable manner. Um, but if there are steps that can be taken to facilitate this request to make it happen without creating such an undue burden, it really needs to be done, even though it may be inconvenient or perhaps the most desirable thing for everybody that's involved. Um, and unfortunately, with this particular case, with it being more of a knee-jerk denial of the request, there wasn't a lot that went into making a determination about whether this could be implemented for this employee and how. Now, they didn't use uh, their HR department. They didn't consult them, which you would assume there would be some expertise there. And there was also sort of loose talk about the, the person having done some of these things in the past. Uh, can you address that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in this particular case, and I think that this does happen from time to time, um, when the request for the accommodation initially came in, it was addressed by the employee's supervisor. And the supervisor did not uh, consult human resources before going back to the employee um, with her response to that request for accommodation. And sometimes I think these this scenario plays out because the supervisors have the relationship with the employee and they know sort of the inner workings of the department. So sometimes they will feel comfortable making these decisions on their own. Um, and sometimes they feel that they don't need to get HR involved. Um, but 
getting HR involved in these types of situations is really important. They tend to have um, sort of a better level of training and more knowledge and expertise about what it is that really is required when these requests come in. Um, and I think sometimes, too, the fact that they may be detached from the day-to-day -day operations of the department, it also takes out some level of people viewing this as being personal, because these requests generally are not personal. And sometimes having somebody who is not involved, um, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis of dealing with some of these employees, it makes it easier for them to just focus on the real issue that's at hand um, with the request for the accommodation, you know, avoid some of the other maybe interdepartmental drama that might be going on and make these decisions um, in a way that is perhaps more fair and might be viewed better by the employee than something coming from the direct supervisor. It also looks like there wasn't a lot of training on this issue of accommodation. Um, the case looks like it uh, has a lot of uh, sort of these risk management elements, but do you recommend um, anticipating this generally and having uh, more training for the frontline people that rather than just sort of concentrating the expertise in the HR department? You know, I think more training is always helpful. I certainly recognize that there are limitations to that and you can't have every workday taken up with uh, <laughs> with training around the clock. Um, but some of these issues, um, I think, because they have the potential to become so problematic. When somebody goes into a management level position, I think having them be generally aware of what the law requires, or even just knowing that when you get this type of a request, go to HR, seek their input. Um, they're there as a resource. Don't try to handle these things on your own. I think that that's important. Um, but, you know, I think particularly, I think there there has been more of an emphasis on this area of disability discrimination and the concept of reasonable accommodations. So I think it's something that's going to be seen more and more in the workplace. And I think too with um, adaptive technologies and sort of some of the shift um, of working from home and things of that nature that were associated with the COVID pandemic, that employers are going to start to get more and more requests that are really truly designed to help bring people into the workplace who might not otherwise been able to be part of that workforce. Um, and the more that employers train their management level people on how to deal with these situations, um, I, I think it's gonna save time, money, and effort down the road. Excellent, thank you, Megan. You're very welcome, my pleasure. Megan Curtis is a partner with Hamill, Marson, Dunn, Reardon, and Shea PC. I'm Tom Ajello for Malpractice Insider. Thank you for listening to Malpractice Insider, a podcast of case studies from Crico in the Harvard Medical System. Find all of our podcasts at www.rmf.harvard.edu slash podcasts and subscribe. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and then rate and review the show to help others find it too.